Milana at Graphic Policy Radio, a special show tonight. Uh, this is a podcast for folks who think that there's enough politics in the Star Wars universe to be worth more than one episode. You will be with us for our second Star Wars World Grown episode to talk about politics in a different way this time. Um, we are going to be having a great new guest joining us in a minute. Um, and first, I want to just give you a little bit of bio about Brian Young. Um, Brian Young is actually one of the leading experts of Star Wars on the internet. Uh, he might deny this, but he's not on yet, so I can say that. And um, he is uh, actually writes for StarWars.com. So he has his own podcast called Full of Sith, which I'm a big fan of now. should definitely start giving it a listen. That's called Full of Sith. Uh, so Brian um, is a documentarian and a journalist, and he writes about Star Wars for StarWars.com um, and for Star Wars Magazine. Uh, he is also one of the founders of a new group called the Rebel Alliance, which is something started by one of our past podcast guests, um, who is uh, who was Andrew Slack, um, who was on our show, I guess, right after the election, I think, to talk about... Um, to talk about ways that fans could get involved in fighting for social change. And uh, essentially, Brian Young is the Star Wars expert, uh, for uh, the house Star Wars expert, as it were, for Imagine Better Network um, of folks who are doing uh, organizing and education mobilization using stories that, were, that began in, in popular culture, like, like Star Wars and like Harry Potter. Brian, can you hear me? I can. Yay! Can you hear me? You. So okay. I can. Oh, this is great. Sorry, uh, I don't usually host the show myself, so I had a bit of a technical panic for a second. So I'm glad to have you on. I was just introducing you, um, and I want to thank you again for joining us. Um, so uh, the, the reason I wanted to do a second show about Star Wars, um, my last one was really centered on conversation with um, – Two fellow TV critics who I who's like are very social justice minded in their analysis, and the episode was awesome, and I think everyone should give it a listen if you haven't yet. Um, that's sort of the home. That's sort of the home of where I did a lot of my talking about um, Rogue One as a film and its place in the Star Wars canon. But I think Rogue One isn't just a film in this moment. Rogue One is an opportunity to have other kinds of conversations around mobilizing um, a a rebellion. I mean, like almost organically, it seemed, people started using the Rebel Alliance hashtag to talk about uh, resistance to Trump. And we didn't really have time to talk about that aspect of it on the last show. And then I found out that um, one of the folks who actually has been using Star Wars for political organizing purposes also happens to be one of the leading experts on Star Wars. And so I said, okay, we've got to do this show. So I guess first thing to listeners is, yes, this is going to be an entirely spoiler-filled show. We will assume that you've seen all of the Star Wars, et cetera, et cetera, when you're joining us on this. Um, and also that a lot of the uh, – we won't be talking as much about, like, but what did you think of the actress performance kind of things tonight? We're going to be talking – more about meta narrative and about activism, and uh, also some of the thoughts from Brian actually on the utility of stuff from the prequels, which is not something I'd thought much about myself. So, um, <laughs> with that in mind, 
Brian, can you tell us a little bit about the U.S. Rebel Alliance, um, how you were formed, and what you guys are trying to do? So the the U.S. Rebel Alliance is actually something that that Andrew um, started as a way to get big money out of politics. And that was a campaign he ran for a little while, and it, it, it was sort of limited in its funding and its scope. And then he sort of brought me in, and he and I have been talking about sort of reshaping it into this fan movement that's more organic, that's more uh, sort of in line with what he'd done with the Harry Potter Alliance. And, and really the, the goal, um, I mean, I, I still feel like we're in its infancy and we haven't done a whole lot yet. Um, but last year we did an event uh, called Teach Me You Did uh, that, that Andrew kind of spearheaded and, and I was just sort of tangentially a part of. But basically the idea is that uh, teachers are sort of uh, um, teachers – aren't exactly as well-respected in today's world as they should be, uh, which is doubly true right now as we, uh, we're we all listening to this instead of watching Al Franken tear Betsy DeVos apart on C-SPAN at the moment. Um, but uh, so the idea is that Star Wars is a really great platform for that. Star Wars uh, has great master-student uh, relationships and – uh, Star Wars itself is a mentor to a lot of people, although it's sort of an inanimate object. The mythology of it has sort of been used as a, a moral compass for a lot of people for a long time. And so, so that sort of seemed natural. And now as we're moving into to 2017, uh, there's real opportunities to use the cultural popularity of Star Wars to try to move the needle on awareness for social justice issues. If that, any yeah, of that makes awesome. sense. Ab- to me, it certainly does. Um, you know, <laughs> I, I really think that popular culture is how we understand the world, and popular culture is also, like, where most of the public is engaging. Like, we're not, everyone's not a fan of every show or property or whatever, but most people are fans of something. And people always talk about things like Star Wars, Star Trek, Marvel Universe, and is connecting to their own moral codes and People certainly read their own politics into them, but they're part of shaping that. Um, and I was really interested in Teach Me You Did uh, because I also care about the way that a lot of the conversation around education in America essentially comes down to attacking teachers for being unable to solve the problem of generational poverty themselves when the actual problem is that people's family don't have enough money to take it. Like, and that's why, why, are not, why aren't all the students doing well? Because some of the students are very hungry. Uh, literally. So um, a lot of the demonization of teachers kind of comes from the refusal to address income inequality. And, you know, all these teachers are trying their damnedest to try to like help students as much as they can. So I was really excited about that. And then you guys are doing some stuff also around, um, around uh, campaign finance reform. And I ended up with giving, trying to present, um, Paul Ryan, uh, Speaker of the House. God, it kills me to address him. Oh, no, it was Paul Ryan. Sorry, tell the story. No, I think it was Andrew. It's 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 Andrew's story. Andrew's sort of all over the place. He should be the one you, you you should be talking to about this. But he presented Ted Cruz with a lightsaber and asked him to take the Jedi pledge and and uh, uh, get big money out of politics. And of course, Ted Cruz doesn't believe that big money should be out of politics. Uh, which is ironic since he's a Star Wars fan, since that's like half of what the prequels are about. 
<laughs> um, I mean, yeah, it's unclear after since Ted Cruz went on to endorse Trump, it's unclear that Ted Cruz has any beliefs. But, but then at the same point, you know, I I hadn't really thought. I, look, I'm going to admit this. I saw the first prequel, and then the second two, I think I only saw them as riff tracks, um, mm-hmm. which is like MST3K format. So I don't really have. I know that as someone who loves DS9 more than the other Star Treks, a lot of folks are saying, like, hey, the prequels actually have the most sort of political governmental interactions in them. Um, can you talk a bit about what you were saying in terms of the prequels being about yeah. finance? Well, um, I think with the Phantom Menace, you have a society where you've had this republic that's been around for a thousand years in this universe, and you have people like... Uh, the Trade Federation, who are who are these this alien race of merchants in this capitalist class, whose names are uh, Newt Gunray, who was named after Newt Gingrich, and Lot Dodd, who was named after Trent Lott. Um, they have they have uh, a seat. They actually they have Senate representation for their company in this republic, and you see that this money is is helping decay and corrupt what makes this Republic function. And then you add to that, the story of Anakin Skywalker. And I think Ryan Johnson, who's uh, the director of episode eight, the last Jedi put it best when he, he, he says he described the prequel so succinctly when he said it's a children's like morality play about how fear of loss turns to fascism. And for some of those people that fear of loss is power uh, for some people, that fear of loss is money, and for Anakin Skywalker, that fear of loss is the loss of his loved ones. Wow, that's that's fascinating. I mean, we definitely hear like you know Mussolini himself says that fascism is the merger of the corporation and the state. Um, you know, there's dystopian stories right now, like uh, who uh, Lazarus you know, by Greg Rucka in the comic series, like where it looks at a future world where corporations or governments. And, and, you know, these are, these are huge conflicts in that. I mean, I think it's great that fiction is exploring them and that making people think about what they mean, <clears throat> what they mean in the real world. Um, yeah, no, I think, I think it's, I think it's like mandatory to look at your art and see what it's telling you, what it's not telling you. And if it's not telling you something, it's probably telling you more than you realize. Um, you know, you hear so much from people saying like, I don't want politics in my art and I'm just going to write stories like the good old days about, you know, Buck Rogers in the future. And it's like, well, you're actually telling me something about the future because if it's Buck Rogers in the future and all of your leads are these strapping straight white males, like what happened two generations prior when, uh, white people were, became the minority or five generations prior, 10 generations prior, like all art is inherently political, especially in the science yeah, fiction exactly. world. Exactly. Like who even exists in this future world? Um, and certainly anything which does not say that it's supposed to be political is political in the sense that it's supporting the status quo and not challenging it, which means it's regressive essentially. Um, yeah. So uh, with, with the, and with the analysis of those prequels in mind, um, you know, one of the things that, a lot of folks talk about when they talk about in, enjoying or finding representations of themselves in, in genre fiction and things like that. They look at like, who are these heroes that embody the values that I wish to have? Uh, who are the people who I look up to? 
And that's not really my primary interest in watching these movies, you know, I mean, as an, not just as an adult, but like certainly not since I was a little kid, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm, that's just not been my primary interest in that. But I think that, um, that, that those questions are challenging when we're looking at movies like the protagonist being Anakin Skywalker for those earlier ones. And the whole thing is premised on like, he's going to fall. Like that's what he does. He falls. And then he redeems himself, you know, like throwing the, uh, the, um, the emperor in, into, you know, the, the, to death later. But like, does that make it harder for folks to relate to it in those ways? Does it matter? Well, I think the interesting thing, the the really bold choice that I think George Lucas made with those prequels is the idea that I think you had to start with Phantom Menace and you had to start with a very pure person because when people watch the classic trilogy, they don't see themselves as Darth Vader, right? Unless you're Steve Bannon. Um, yes. You don't, you don't identify with Darth Vader at all. And the the great thing about the prequels is they pull the curtain back and say, no, you could be Darth Vader. You could have been that eight-year-old sweet little kid, right, who, who was just golly gee whiz, happy-go-lucky. That could have been you, and you could have been put I, – I think this is like the key argument to be made in like um, taking care of uh, homelessness or Medicaid or things like that, where the idea is like you're like one bad decision or one bad accident away from disaster, whether that's – turning into someone like Darth Vader and making choices like that, or whether that's financial ruin because of a a medical bill or something like that. And so I think it's important that the prequels were able to pull that curtain back so people could say, um, you know, this, this could have been me given the right set of circumstances and that there is always a chance to come back from it. No matter how much damage you've done, you can come back from that and and turn Mm. your back on that. I love it. I love it. You know, while I wasn't looking for, like, a character to idealize when watching Star Wars, I was sort of hoping, because I'm always sort of hoping for this, that there would be something coming out of the film that would be a useful rallying cry to encourage folks to take action and organize. And this sort of cut two different ways for me. On the one hand, in terms of Rogue One specifically, Rogue One itself tries to establish itself as a critique of the great man theory. Um, Galen Erso keeps telling the Empire that they don't need him to build the Death Star, that there's lots of scientists who are smart enough to do this for them. He's not necessary. And they're like, no, no, but you're totally the most subtly white dude we have. So clearly, because you're better looking than these other scientists, you're the only brilliant scientist who can go and save and build this tool for us. We need you in particular. And, you know, he uses that then as a way to undermine them, that they insist that he is the great white man who is special. Um, but he doesn't believe this is true, and I, and I certainly believe him when he's I, – I don't – I believe him when he says that he is not the only scientist who could have come up with this. Um, and then he uses, of course, his, his power to undermine the empire. And the other big moment of saying that, like, no, this is not the great man, anti-great man theory is, like, we, you know, we have um, Krennic who's going around insisting, like, you know, he is the project manager – who's the guy who got this done. And he's like, I love him as an example of the banality of evil, like in, 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 in a science fiction movie, like, God, I wish I remember who said like, all he wants is proper credit for project management skills. And like, yeah, that is yeah. a motive that an actual villain can have. Absolutely. 
Um, so he's doing the banality of evil thing, and he thinks that he's super important, but he's actually completely replaceable in the cogs of fascism because there's always someone else who will, you know, do this evil role. Someone else will step into his shoes, you know, um, uh, Grandma uh, Tarkin. Yeah, help me out. Thank you. Tarkin. Tarkin is like, yeah, we're gonna totally let you get killed because I'd rather get credit for this anyway. You're, you're you think this is about you, but you're not. You're just a cog in the fascist machine. And I think the movie did a fantastic job of hitting that in those two different ways, from a good guy and a bad guy perspective. What do you do? You have any thoughts about that? Yeah. No, I think that's absolutely the case. I think uh, I, I think that both of those characters are so fascinating, um, especially when you go back into the um, into their heads. Actually, in the book uh, that's set right immediately before the events of the opening scene of Rogue One. Um, called Catalyst. Uh, there's a lot of interesting material there, uh, not just with Galen and uh, Krennic as they sort of dance around each other trying to avoid this this responsibility, or, or uh, Krennic tries to take it and Galen c- continues to try to shirk it, but uh, mm-hmm. they do a lot to sort of redeem and make interesting uh, Lyra Urso as well, which was something I thought lacking in the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, is she political? Is she, actually, quick, quick question. This book was released after the movie came out, I assume? Before. It, it, it came out... No way. Um, oh, maybe wow. the month before, yeah. Um, she She is sort of political, but more spiritual than political, actually. She was an adherent mm-hmm. to the Church of the Force. Um, so the reason she hands over that kyber crystal and has that connection, and even... Uh, if you notice, it took me a few times watching Rogue One to notice it, but she's wearing the same Guardian of the Wills sorts of uh, um, red sash that Chirrut is through the movie. And the idea is that maybe so she's, she's sort of connected order. to that. Um, mm-hmm. But she actually was like a um, an environmentalist and a, uh, an expert on these crystals as well in the book. And so she was actually part of Galen's research. Um, so he wasn't working on that in a vacuum either. And she was, uh, she was very much her own person with her own expertise. Did she politicize him? Was that like part of their relationship? Part of their relationship was her trying to, uh, her trying to like manage his, um, I mean, she, she was, she was trying to manage the brilliance of him. I mean, he was a brilliant man, but she respected the fact that he wanted to stay out of politics. And she was the one always telling him like, no, the empire is not okay here. Especially there's a really haunting scene in the book where they're trying to research Kyber crystals. And the book actually starts before the uh, end of the clone wars. And once the Clone Wars end, we know that ends with Order 66, which was the elimination of the Jedi by uh, Emperor Palpatine, uh, Krennic arrives to give them uh, kyber crystals. And Lyra knows where they're from immediately. And it's almost like stolen goods from from Jewish prisoners in World War II, right? Like the, the, oh. the, the stolen lightsabers of murdered Jedi and they're giving them over to, to Galen to research on. And she's sort of his conscious about that. And, and he's buying into the alternative fact narrative that Palpatine is, has sold that the Jedi are evil. 
and she's the one sort of trying to pull him back from that and say, no, it doesn't matter. Like just because the war's over doesn't mean that, that this is, this is going to be okay. Oh, how interesting. Well, I'm very interested in checking out this, this book now. Um, and actually, you know, one of the things I got listening to your podcast is, and I've met, I, I, it sounds like some of the recent cartoons, I've heard great things about them. I'm a bit resistant to 3D animation. Like, I'm just old school. I like flat yeah. things that are vaguely retro looking. I'm sorry. Um, but it sounded like since Saul Guerrero, like he's someone who was in one of the earlier shows, I don't remember which is if it's Rebels or whatever, but is there like, is there really good juicy political content in the prequel um, animated series as well? Yeah, there there very much is. Now, Saw Gerrera is an interesting character where obviously George Lucas, he's a character George Lucas created for Clone Wars, and he was supposed to be an avatar for Che Guevara, right? He was leading uh-huh. a guerrilla warfare campaign against the Separatists on his home planet. And it was the Jedi that taught him. I, I found this particularly interesting, uh, and this is this is kind of why I love the. It's the same reason I love like comic books, right? Where you can connect all those dots, and when you can, it feels like you're you're way cooler than you are. Um, uh, you just got quiet. But... Hello, Brian. Can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you. You got real can you quiet hear me? for a second. Uh, barely. Oh, okay. If you can, if you can hear me though. Um, but, but, uh, watching all these connections is really fascinating where Anakin and his Padawan Ahsoka, uh, go to Saw's home planet and train them in guerrilla warfare. And you see that Saw in Rogue One is using the same tactics that the Jedi taught him, that Anakin taught him specifically, and that he himself is all, is, um, is very much like Darth Vader, that half machine, person who can barely breathe on his own and it arrives from a similar sort of loss during those episodes of clone wars he loses his sister in the conflict um very much not at all like the way anakin loses padme um Mm. but he he has to deal with this loss and you can see how the different trajectories people take when they're they're suffering through that. I know a lot of people sort of criticized Forrest Whitaker's performance, but you think about a guy who has been fighting a war for literally 20, 25 years, has probably no access to health care, let alone mental health care, and all of the PTSD that would go with even one tour of combat, let alone 25 years worth of it, and all of the psychological issues that deal with losing your limbs. Um, I think him being a little crazy is the least of his, I I think that that's mandatory Mm -hmm. almost. Yeah. I mean, one of the things I loved about the movie is like everybody in it is a survivor of trauma and is still finding ways to be heroic and do the right thing, even though they're suffering. Um, Yeah. And I thought that was particularly powerful. Well, Um, and I I think what's, one of the things that's really powerful about that, and I know that you'd, you'd sort of asked about, um, would it be useful um, as a as a rallying tool, knowing that everybody dies at the end, right? Yeah. But I think I think that's almost sort of a perfect metaphor, right? Like for activism, we're all trying to make a better place of the world for our kids, and to make that a world that we might we'll probably never see, right? Like that's all activism is, is to make it incrementally better or substantially better, but it feels more incremental than not 
to create a world for our kids that we're not going to see that's better than the one we lived in. And although they compress that and they they make it much more dramatic in Rogue One, I think that's sort of that's sort of what we're all doing, right? Hmm. That's interesting. I mean, I guess for me, like, it was really hard to watch Star uh, Rogue One right after the election. Um, like looking at like what are <laughs> yeah. the stakes and moments of self sacrifice that folks are being called to do in that. I mean, I one of I was just I just came from an awesome forum organized by couple of my awesome city councilmen in New York City um, that trying it was like over a thousand people filling a synagogue talking about community organizing to support immigrants um, and like things that people are going to personally do to help support immigrants in their community and uh, there was a quote from one of the speakers she was from an awesome group called Drum which is Desi's Rising Up and Moving which is an uh, Indian American and Pakistani American community group and he said solidarity isn't something you just preach it's something you do and sometimes it's a sacrifice and, you know, whether the sacrifice takes the form of, like, spending a lot more of your time doing movement work than you had wanted to rather than, like, just having, you know, relaxing time, whether it means that you're spending more money than you had meant to or it could mean some things that are a lot more intense than that. And, and, and in the case of Rogue One, like, you're looking at people who have made a choice to dedicate their lives to the struggle and who were willing and knowing about the odds that they were facing and like knowingly chose to like sacrifice themselves for the greater good. And, and one of the things I, I harped on, on our, on our other Rogue One episode, which I still just am like obsessed with is like that last scene with all of the nameless um, Alderaan soldiers doing everything they can to get the thumb drop yeah. ship and get it into Leia's hands. And each one of them knowing they're going to die and doing everything they can to make sure that that task is achieved is just like, it's, it's hard for me. I mean, I was just incredibly moving for me and, and knowing that, that none of them were going to have names that anybody would ever know again. Just like, I just kept connecting that back to like partisan fighters and like the Warsaw ghetto. It's just like very emotional for me. And, and, and like, yeah. I mean, we're talking about the fact that we're talking about the world in these terms right now is like not really good for organizing in some ways. Right. Like people don't want no. to think about things that are sad or scary. And I think there's there's another issue Rogue One actually kind of handles really well um, is that infighting between organizations that are organizing for similar causes, right? Mm. Um, there's that wonderful scene right after they leave Edu, after Galen Erso has been killed and Jin is confronting Cassie and Ander about lying to her, about what his orders were. And the two of them have that tit-for-tat conversation where she thinks she has the moral high ground but he reveals that he's been fighting just as hard, just as long. And he's accusing her of being sort of a fair weather member of the rebellion of the cause because Mm -hmm. she left it, but he doesn't know what her story is. And he doesn't know what she gave up. And at the end of the day, they ended up having to trust each other, despite what their involvement was prior to that or what they thought of each other prior to that. And there's so much, um, infighting I see between uh, particularly liberal organizations about how to handle things or about how to talk about things uh, when in reality they're, they're working toward the same goal. And uh, I, I, I thought that was, that was incredibly fascinating. And I think that's still my favorite scene in the whole movie. Um, it's just sort of packed with so much power and so much, so much mythology uh, about the world, about the characters and metaphorically for for that position that we're we're sort of in uh because 
we like to argue amongst each other about what the right solution might be. And, and we're all working toward the same goal. And sometimes that gets in the way. Well, I mean, I, I, I think that we're all working towards the short, the same short term goal, which is stopping Trump from ruining the world. But I think that there's conflicting long term views of like what the end result we want to see would be. But I think that oh, yeah, I also yeah. think that it's like, yeah, I mean, but I also think it's interesting that um, you have the scene where uh, Jin is doing this speech in front of the different factions of the alliance talking about why they should throw down and, and take radical violent action against the empire and seeing that different, you know, different people have different levels of uh, tolerance for risk yeah. and different people have different levels of stamina or, uh, or different, they have different visions of what's possible and achievable. Um, and that when, you know, when people weren't able to, achieve consensus, you know, like Jin or so and her crew like behaved undemocratically and decided that they were just going to throw down now and gave people yeah. the option to opt in or opt not. And we talk a lot about the diversity of tactics. Like, you know, if one group of people is trying to do civil disobedience, are you doing it in a way that's going to risk getting some perhaps undocumented people arrested, which might then result in some very uh, dangerous circumstances for them, but that might not have been the same level of danger for citizens if we were undertaking a civil disobedience. Um, so to be yeah. to think about that when you're taking action. I'm not saying she was wrong. I, I think she was clearly right, but it's not an easy decision. No, it's not. And I found what was so interesting about that is, is and, and disheartening too, if you apply it to our current situation, that you watch the movie and it's so clear how naive the senators are, right? Like they think they can, they can bring Galen Erso before the Senate, before Palpatine and prove to everyone that Palpatine is evil and thereby fix the government. And the Jedi tried that in, in episode three and they showed up to arrest Palpatine per the, the book and he murdered all of them. So for the senators to think, like, we'll stop this Death Star thing in its tracks as long as we have solid proof of it and we can bring it to the Senate, uh, that's incredibly naive. And mm-hmm. on some level, that's disheartening for me in the current political situation. I mean, I've been calling my senators and my congressperson every day since, uh, you know, since the Trump administration started. And I feel like it's a small thing that I can do, but am I being as naive as those senators to think that they'll stop building the Death Star if I ask them hard enough in the Senate? I'm not sure. Yeah, I think that that's definitely the right question. Um, And I, you know, and there's a question of like, well, you know, perhaps the appeal is to the workers then is the appeal then to, the workers to say you need to stop building the Death Star because the Death Star is an attack on you as well. Um, well, and we're seeing that like with with Trump's immigration order, right? Where you've got mm-hmm. uh, you've got you've got the federal courts saying like, no, this isn't okay, even though the administration's fighting back on that. Fortunately, we still have some semblances to 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 stop some of these Death Stars as they're happening, but um, we're not going to win all those fights. I mean, we still are in a position where we're not sure if the president is going to follow the Constitution in terms of separation of powers and rule of law. Like, this is not stuff that we 
to encounter before, like, you, you know, even under Bush administration and, and under Nixon, it was markedly different. So, I, I, you know, I think that the questions of like, you know, if there's people who are in power who have taken themselves out of the existing system of governance, like people like, you know, like, do you, are you, how are you recognizing that? And what does that mean? With the arrest, I, cause like I said, I saw basically like a MST3K version of the pre of the second two prequels. Like, are there any mm-hmm. repercussions when the emperor kills the people who are there to arrest him, like what happens after that? So this is, these are the seeds he's been planting the whole time is he's been baiting the Jedi to make it seem as though they're attempting a coup. So when he kills them and goes to the Senate and tells everyone the Jedi tried to take over, we put the attack down and we've murdered the Jedi in response he makes it sound as though it's a totally sound uh, political decision that was made and that people are willing to, to deal with. Some people are in disbelief, but they they believe in the government, right? They believe in democracy because that's what – or they believe in the republic, which is what they've been sort of sold this bill of goods, which is why the Senate is still there, which is why Palpatine was able to uh, – create more power but but the idea like what happens is is he says because of this we have to reform the republic because this was on the heels of a civil war and the civil war to the public proved that the republic didn't work as it was so we're reforming into this empire and i'm going to be the head of it because you've trusted me with it for so long of course you're going to trust me with it now and he rode that wave of populism emperor in a popular way. I mean, he didn't, he didn't lose that election. Mm-hmm. They asked him for it. We are living in star Wars, ladies and gentlemen. Um, <laughs> it's, it's so shocking and disgusting. And if I don't cry or if I don't laugh, I'll cry. So that's my thing, right? Like how can we use star Wars to organize when like star Wars triggered all of my, like, like, Jewish Holocaust survivor, grandkid, like, you know, emotional bells. And, I, and I'm someone who's out here saying, I mean, it's so weird almost to have this conversation publicly because I generally view this show as being a way to recruit. Not, I mean, I also view it as, like, fun. But I also view it as a way to recruit people who don't normally participate in activism and organizing to, like, get involved. So here I am talking about, like, it's not always fun, guys. There's some stuff that's scary. Like, I don't know, like, your your point about like ultimately we organize you for a future or for our grandkids and things we might not see, which and still involves us, you know, like living to the age of 100, like beforehand. But like, how do we organize using Star Wars Rogue One when everybody dies? It's amazing. They can't even, I, I was shocked to see they were trying to sell toys for the show um, from the movie when I was watching <laughs> cartoons the other day. I was like, little child, all of those, all of those characters are dead now. But that's okay. Um, you know, like, I don't know. Yeah. No, those, those big K2SO toys were, I I just imagine little kids going and buying those K2SOs before and then just leaving the theater and holding them a little tighter afterward. Um, I kind of can't believe that children were taken to this movie though, to be honest. I like, like definitely tweens, but like children really like, do they want to see that happen? Well, the the it's the way I looked at. I mean, like I used to watch. It, it's a movie in line with like 
the Dirty Dozen or Kelly's Heroes on some level, right? And those are the those are the movies my grandparents uh, watched with me when I was six, seven, and sort of instilled that that love of the war movie genre. I mean, my grandfather was a veteran of World War II, and just World War II movies and Looney Tunes were all we watched together. And this mm-hmm. sort of brought back all that nostalgia. Like, this is the Star Wars movie I wish I could have seen with my grandfather when I was six. You know. Um, but I definitely think it, 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 it's definitely, uh, it depends on the kid. I think my son, when he was six years old, would have been fine with this. My daughter, when she was six years old, probably not. Um, and it, it, it's interesting at 13, um, in the trailers and the lead up, she was all about Jin Erso and she saw the movie twice with me and then just said, you know, I think I like Ray better. I like Jin, but, uh. I'm going to go pretend to be Ray. Um, yeah. People want to live. Um, that's like not surprising. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I mean, that's what's so interesting about uh, the concept of the force, right? Uh, like Chirrut says that, that uh, as long as, as long as you believe in the force, I'm always there. Right. Um, Yoda has that great line in, in revenge of the Sith as well. That, that, uh, um, we need to rejoice for those around us who transform into the force and, and uh, not to mourn them, not to miss them because we have that energy, right? Like star Wars is philosophy and what is philosophy, but learning how to die with that, with that dignity, right? Like, look at, look at, oh, wow. uh, um, that's, that's what the force is. And that's why Anakin turned, right? He couldn't come to terms with that. Um, he was so worried about losing his wife that he was willing to do all these horrible things because he was told that he would save his wife if he did all these horrible things, which again is something Trump is doing, right? He's saying, you're going to get your manufacturing jobs back if we build this wall and keep Muslims out of the country. Those things are not going to lead to those manufacturing jobs coming back, but people are following him anyway because that's what they're being told. And that's exactly what Palpatine told Anakin that turned him to Darth Vader. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. So, and so, oh no, go ahead. And I mean, you know, like the wall is not bringing back Zom's um, effect broadly, but there's a specific thing of a wall is a thing which would have to be constructed, and you know, like you know, like who is who is going to be building it, and like, are you going to say no to that because? you know that this is something which endangers you. Like I've always thought about some of the labor questions in terms of like, like are you going to build the Death Star and fire it at yourself in the name of job creation? Because like I've seen some groups of people behave that way before and I've seen plenty of other labor leaders criticize that approach. Um, you know, Sidney Hillman, the famous founder of, the Amalgamated Textile Workers Union um, said, you know, that if you if you are willing, workers are saying they would build build gallows and um, and to, their own gallows, so to, to calling it a jobs program essentially. Like I'm, I guess I'm almost being a bit euphemistic in the in, in interest of not offending certain folks with this. But um, you know, I thought that was like, yes, this is the question. And the, the thing is, of course, in Star Wars, where the Empire is a totalitarian state, so the workers who are building this are not really given a chance to say if this is a construction project they want to sign on to or not. But um, I think it's still a metaphor that works in our world. 
there were a couple of really interesting episodes of Star Wars Rebels where they actually sort of get into the Imperial uh, industrial complex as far as building machines. And there was uh, rebel opposition during the times of the Empire where they were they were essentially monkey-wrenching equipment and making it so that it would malfunction on Imperials during excursions and cost them battles. And they were doing these things from inside, which is very much the same thing of of uh, workers forced in World War II into uh, working on the, the Nazi war machine, right, where they would just work as slowly uh-huh. as possible, just long enough to make sure that they weren't going to get killed in the process. Um, and, and I wouldn't be surprised if we saw that level of sort of uh, um, that, that sort of passive obstruction from the inside, but also just outright monkey mm-hmm. wrenching. Uh, from the I mean, outside. God, God, I certainly hope, like, in terms of government employees, that, you know, people will keep their jobs working for the government and will use those jobs as places to resist some of the worst impulses of, of the Trump administration. Um, and I, I think That's... about, like, Bodie Rook, right? Like, he was someone who was on the inside who, you know, through a combination of his conversations with Galen Urso, I mean, it sounds like Galen Urso organized him, as we'd say in uh, union parlance, uh, into doing in, into taking an incredible risk to himself. But I do also think what he worked like working as a as a person of color working for the Empire in a low level job was a, probably already someone who was aware of some of the effed up dynamics um of the Empire. Yeah. Right. Um you well, know it, someone who had you, who was inside and then took action using that power to change everything. And you look at um Princess Leia even, right? I mean, she was a member of the Imperial Senate. She was, for all intents and purposes, uh, an Imperial. Uh, and she had been working as part of that resistance. There's uh, Again, uh, in the cartoons, there was a really great... Uh, actually, it ties into Rogue One. If you remember the Hammerhead Corvette that crashes into the Star Destroyer that ends up destroying the Shield Gate? Like those Hammerhead... Action cor- <laughs> Those hammerhead corvettes were actually given to that rebel cell by Princess Leia and Alderaan uh, on the TV show Rebels. And the idea was that Alderaan was sort of – they were going to planets under heavy imperial occupation that had rebel forces on them uh, covertly and bringing these ships and these supplies in, getting some of it to the people who needed it on the planet, but then tipping the rebels off so that they could steal all of this material in the ships, so that Alderaan would not look to the Empire as though they were complicit in uh, in supporting the Rebellion, and in fact blaming the Empire for losing their stuff, their, these ships, these three Hammerhead Corvettes, uh, including the one we saw in Rogue One specifically, blaming the Empire for, for their incompetence for letting the Rebels steal all that from them, when in fact it was Alderaan actively providing it to the rebellion and Leia wow. worked through her whole career to make sure that the rebellion was equipped and had what it needed. And so did Bail Organa, her father um, from the inside, from the, the Senate, you know, Mon Mothma was still a Senator as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and in deleted scenes from revenge of the Sith, it was interesting. Um, Mon Mothma and uh, Padme and Bail Organa actually started working to seed the rebellion there in the Senate uh, as far back as, as the end of the Clone Wars. And, uh, you know, there's definitely room for people to be working on the inside 
to to disrupt some of these horrible things. Oh, that's wonderful. So Rebels definitely sounds that like it has some great material and like it's a show that I should probably watch because that sounds amazing. Oh, absolutely. Um, there's I would recommend Clone Wars as context, especially for um, there's a lot of characters and themes and storylines that started in Clone Wars that are wrapping up in Rebels, but I will go hands down and say that the season two finale of Rebels is as good as any of the movies. So should I just start watching Rebels basically from the beginning? You can do that. You can do that. But I think there's a lot of context in Clone Wars you might need. There's probably maybe 20 or 30 episodes that you absolutely have to watch of Clone Wars to, I think, get the maximum effect out of Rebels. But uh, I think Clone Wars taken as a whole is a very um, mature work of art. But if your issue is 3D animation, I think Rebels has a little bit less of that look. It feels much more like a Ralph McQuarrie painting where Clone Wars was sort of stylistically trying to be sort of like Thunderbirds where all the characters are sort of like painted marionettes rather than <laughs> animated characters. Sorry. Um, that's like just, that's a shudder for me. I'm sorry. Like, uh, I hope no, I, I watch it, but um, the yeah. first, the first season, the first season's a little rough, um, especially since the way it was produced, it, it just sort of went all over the place, but there's definitely some, some very challenging uh, episodes philosophically there's there's a great four part arc in in Clone Wars it's basically Paths of Glory right and they had uh, they brought Walter Merchant uh, who was the editor of Apocalypse Now to direct the that the, the first episode in that arc and it's really oh, challenging wow. stuff with the clones all of the really interesting sci-fi elements like hard science fiction stories you would have expected dealing with an army full of clones didn't get addressed in the movies got explored in small episodes and small arcs through the course of the Clone Wars series. Huh. Well, color me intrigued. I might have to take a brief pause of rewatching every episode of Young Justice in order to, <laughs> to get my well, Wars, uh, up to speed. If you're interested in Young Justice, actually, Greg Weissman, who was sort of the big, the big shot on Young Justice, uh, he wrote the 12-issue Kanan comic book series that is the tie-in mm-hmm. to Rebels, and he wrote a number of episodes for the first season and was one of the the creatives in charge of that first season of Rebels. Oh, wow. Well, speaking of Star Wars comics, because um, I did not realize that he was the writer on that one. If I wasn't, but, but There was just so much hap being produced at the time. I wasn't really focusing on Star Wars comics at that point, but I have been finally reading Kieran Gillen's um, run on... Uh, Darth, Darth Vader, Vader yeah. which is spectacular and dark and funny, and is yeah, is the sort of thing which is like politically aware, of like from like this is someone who is saying like, look, the things that you love about the rebel side can be mimicked and part done through a dark lens from the bad guy side. How do you feel about them now? Um, is I think one of the philosophical questions that the Darth Vader. Uh, cop story is offering while also just being playing up. Have you read? Have you read his series? Uh, I've read. Uh, I think I've got up to like issue twenty. I haven't read the last few issues yet, leading okay. into Doctor so, Afra. Yeah. But but I've read plenty of it, and I think that one of my favorite moments in Star Wars actually is in I think it's Darth Vader number six when Boba Fett reports to him that he has a son, 
and we learn that moment where Vader realized this and understood it, and then it shades all the meaning in Empire Strikes Back, doubly so when Palpatine comes to Vader and says, I think this is your son. We know that Vader's playing dumb because Vader's playing a bigger game against Palpatine. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it definitely establishes the conflict between those two, those two characters very well. Yeah. Um, I don't think we're going to get that level of conflict out of Trump and Steve Bannon, though, unfortunately. No, (laughs) no, that's unfortunate. Well, you know, (laughs) um, but that that, that actually is an interesting parallel I haven't particularly focused on. But, yeah, they definitely establish these being characters with specific agendas, and they're not, like, completely aligned, and there's different factions and philosophical agendas that – have different orientations that you see from behind the you know the, the enemy lines when you're reading that that, that series now. Um, yeah. From a political standpoint, like are are you are you reading many of the Star Wars comics right now? Um, I was reading all of them, but I'm a, I'm just like six months behind. There's just so uh, many comics and so many Star mm-hmm. Wars books. I'm caught up on all the books and I'm caught up on all the TV series. Wow. Uh, but I'm about six months behind so, on the, the, the comics. Which, which of the comics do you feel like the discerning left at left leaning comics consumer would be most interested in since there's more than we could possibly read? Um, you know, I think the best one that's come out is uh, the Lando miniseries that Charles Sewell did. Um, and he's just a great writer in general, but, uh, the Lando series, uh, it talks a lot about sort of risk versus reward and someone like Lando may be taking too much risk, but too much risk of other people that, that happen to be close and dear to him. Um, and it, it does more, it, it actually, again, like it's another one of those comics that actually changes how you watch empire strikes back because it, deals with the relationship between Lando and Lobot. Mm. And uh Lando and, and it's kind of heartbreaking. And Lobot? Is that the guy with the who is his, his head? Yeah. You'll you'll I'm have an all new appreciation for that guy. <laughs> no, there's no such thing as a bad fan. And this is one of the things that we we really try to promote on Full of Sith is that fan is a self-selected term, right? So it's 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 incumbent on people who are uh, who are more not dedicated fans, but more entrenched fans to not like gatekeep for people who don't know this sure. stuff, but act as ambassadors to get them excited about the stuff and maybe bring them mm-hmm. further along in the fandom. But, you know, I, I know people who only like two and a half star Wars movies. And I like people who their star Wars is only clone wars and they couldn't care less about the movies. And I know people who only care about the video games and Knights of the old Republic is their only interaction with star Wars, but they're all star Weird. Wars fans because there's yeah, yeah. something that they can, there's something in there that they love. And that's partly because star Wars is such a, an expansive universe and there's so much mythology there no matter what part of it you touch, that, that there's almost certainly something any two Star Wars fans, no matter how much they like things differently or at different levels, can find something to talk about and agree on. And maybe that's the maybe that's the um maybe that's part of the lesson for organizing too is that is that we can find that level as well. So what are the next steps um for the U.S. Rebel Alliance, I mean, we've really seen an explosion of people self-identifying 
as the Rebel Alliance of social media. Um, and I've seen, you know, like at, at Working Families Party is used that Princess Leia rebel uh, imagery at protests and stuff. Like, what do you, are you guys going, like doing outreach to people who are using your hashtags so, to get them involved in the campaign or what are you guys doing now? Uh, we're, st- we're, st- we're still sort of working on organizing. Uh, there's definitely going to be another Teach Me You Did this year, which I think is going to be more important this year than it was last year, especially if, if, if Betsy DeVos gets nominated or uh, confirmed. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, we're also, I think, trying to wrestle around the idea that there are a lot of activists already activated that want to use Star, Star Wars iconography to get uh, involved. But I think that there's, like, everyone's a Star Wars fan, right? And, yeah. and there's debate about how we can do this but I think that because everyone's a Star Wars fan, evil, even people on the other side of the aisle, that there's an opportunity to use Star Wars to sort of bring everyone in. If we can create that inclusive environment in Star Wars fandom as Star Wars fans, then we can use that to slowly chip away at people's um, – to slowly chip away at the misconceptions people might have about the world or or their alternative facts about the world and how they – uh, relate to Star Wars that makes them more socially progressive and sort of move mm-hmm. the needle to the left using Star Wars because Star Wars was always created from the beginning from, from, from George Lucas's mouth to be political allegory, to be that thing yeah. that, that helps guide people toward, toward goodness, right? Like trying yeah, to that's see why power, trying star, to see, like, well, yeah, yeah all of these things are inherently wrong. And so these, I think that these conservative readings of it are misinterpretations. And if we can help contextualize and make some of those fans understand star Wars at a deeper level, that maybe they'll, that maybe they'll start coming over to the other side of the political aisle and, or maybe they'll start realizing that they're Bodie Rook, right? Yeah. So how does that happen? Is it happening in the form of like guys writing meta about it? Like, are there going to be like, how are you guys doing that? Like I said, we're still in the planning phases. I think one of them we started just before Rogue One started, we started a a new Jedi pledge that we got a few thousand people to sign about just creating an inclusive and diverse fandom. Um, Mm. You know, with Star Wars, I don't know if you remember, I don't know if you remember um, when people started freaking out about there being a black stormtrooper or when <laughs> Ray wasn't, wasn't represented capably in the merchandise, but star Wars yeah. fans have this star Wars fans have those, uh, those hackles that can be raised really easily, but there's also star Wars fans that, that sort of reject that. And mm-hmm. I think the star Wars fans that are on board with those, those, those issues of inclusivity and diversity uh, are are the majority, and I think that the, we're working on the more inclusive we make fandom, the more we'll bring those people over to those ideals of of diversity and inclusion. And I think that that's sort of one of I mean, taking politics out of it completely. If we could get every Star Wars fan to understand inclusion and the importance for diversity, would we have had a Trump? I'm not sure. I don't think so. Yeah, I think that's an excellent point. I mean, that's one of the roles of stories is to educate people on how they see the world. Um, 
And and there's a lot of people who just look at Star Wars as escapism, and we need to help them understand that there's more to it, which is exciting, right? Because we can help mm-hmm. them take those deep dives. I love doing that, and I love sharing that. I love being that ambassador. So if somebody wants to, who's a Star Wars fan, wants to help support your work, like what, what, what should they do? I mean, obviously they need to get on the email list. I'm assuming that's through the website. What are yeah, the so if, if you go to – doing? Um, like, like I said, right now we're in planning phases. So if people are going to JediPledge.org, you can still take that inclusivity pr- pledge, and that gets on the mailing list. So that is Teach Me You Did um, starts to roll out and other things roll out. You'll know exactly how to uh, how to do that, uh, how we're how we're asking people to do that. But right now, it's like I said, it's still very much in its infancy. But uh, I think it's the the acorn that will grow a mighty oak. Hmm. And I can foresee there being rules, you know, for folks who want to write meta, for folks who like to make graphics, for folks who like to have yes, like, chat conversations much. and social media things like if, that. If if being more involved is is your interest i can get you on we've got sort of a a closed facebook group where we're working on organizing if you find me on twitter uh my twitter handle is at swankmotron uh hit me up with a message and i'll dm you information and s w a n go ahead uh s w a n k m o t r o n um we can we can certainly put your skills to use Great. And we've been tweeting that out and tagging you throughout the show as well. Um, I'm so excited about this. I really, I really have been very happy to rediscover my Star Wars fanness through through Rogue One. Um, as someone who like Star Wars was everything when I was very little, and then it wasn't anything for me for years. Um, so <laughs> I, I'm really looking forward to getting into this the deep dive of listening to your podcast, Full of Sith. How often does that is that recorded? Uh, that show comes out weekly, but sometimes we'll do. Sometimes we'll have situations like if we go to conventions, um, we'll probably roll out ten episodes in a week, um, just covering all the stuff we've done there. But it's at minimum once a week, usually Monday. That's fantastic. Looking forward to diving into that more. The episodes I've listened to so far have been really excellent, smart conversation. Folks who like this show oh. should like that. Should, should like that show as well. And where else can folks find you on the internet? Um, I do another podcast as well called Fothentic History. Um, if people are familiar with the Stuff You Missed in History podcast, uh, mm-hmm. Holly Fry uh, from that podcast, her and I basically do a show that's in that format but with fictional universes. Uh, so our first episode was examining the Battle of Hoth almost like it was a, a World War II battle. Um, and it just sort of switches from Star Wars to other universes but always comes back to Star Wars and we just sort of approach fake history like real historians um, which oh, is a lot, a lot of, fun. of fun that's great and uh, that's if, cool. if you want uh, you can find my, my writings and my, my regular reviews of Rebels episodes and Star Wars stuff at uh, BigShinyRobot.com and if you're interested in my writings uh, including uh, a non-fiction book that wasn't supposed to be political but everyone keeps telling me that it is but it's, a, it's just a straight history book uh um, you can go to brianyoungfiction.com, and, and uh, that, that book is a children's illustrated history of presidential assassination. Oh, fascinating. 
Well, as we discussed, yeah. everything is political, so I'm not surprised that it's political. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, well, it, it's supposed to be history, but history is inherently political, so I guess, yeah, I guess it is. But I've promoting the book in the last couple of weeks. I've had a lot of people tell me like, "What are you advocating?" And it's like, people buy my book. I'm not, I'm not actually insinuating more than that. Oh, uh, oh I wasn't sure. Okay, but, that's that's crazy. I just thought you meant like yeah. any kind of conversation around history of the past is going to have reflections on like political thought. Well, or that's politics. Of that's the time. true, but but me me telling people to check out a book that's been out for two years about presidential assassination is apparently a bridge too far in the last couple of weeks because somehow I'm advocating I guess we should all stop learning that. about history. That's crazy pants. I Whoever know. Is, like trying to draw yeah. that conjecture, like smack them across the face. Like what, what is that? Like, we, no, that's just silly. You are being yeah. very silly. Um, well, thank yeah. you so much for joining us tonight. I, I've really, really had a great time. And, and I think that, as we continue uh, learning more about the Star Wars universe, it would be great to have you come back and join us. And I, I want yeah, to anything. hear more about what you guys are doing, what you guys are doing in terms of the organizing world. So we'll be in touch yeah, around definitely. that. For sure. Well, so thank you a, for having me. Yeah. It's, been, it's been a lot of fun. Fantastic. And again, you're at Swank Motron on Twitter. Great way to reach you. Mm-hmm. And um, U.S. Rebel Alliance actually took me a second to figure that out on, on Twitter. It's at U.S. Rebel Alliance. Yeah. So, thank you very much. Have a great night. You too. May the force be with you. Why didn't I say that? Gosh. (laughs) Well, thank you, (laughs) listeners, for joining us. Um, This has been Graphic Policy Radio. If you came in late, missed the beginning, you'll be able to listen to this podcast in, in, in its entirety. Uh, on iTunes in a couple of hours. We'll also be up on SoundCloud and Stitcher probably sometime tomorrow. Um, but you can always go back and find us on iTunes and on those other platforms very soon. Uh, to keep up with graphic policy, you should be going to our website, which is graphicpolicy.com, for reviews of comics, movies, games, or a hub of everything geek, particularly through a political analytical lens. And we are also on Twitter at Graphic Policy. Um, I am Ilana. I'm on Twitter at E-L-A-N-A underscore Brooklyn. I'm on Twitter all the time. So feel free to hit me up there. I'm on Tumblr less of all the time, but I'm at Ilana Brooklyn at Tumblr. And Graphic Policy is a graphic policy on Tumblr. We keep it nice and consistent. Uh, We'll be back next week with another show about comics. Thank you and uh, talk to you then. In the meantime, keep it geeky.